This is the Bates Bobcast, our weekly podcast where we take a look at the week that was in Bates Athletics. My name is Aaron Morrison. This week we continue our YA Coach Series with our lacrosse coaches. Women's lacrosse head coach Brett Allen and men's lacrosse head coach Peter Lasagna join the show to talk about their backgrounds and what led them to what is known as the Creator's Game. That's coming up on the Bates Bobcast. Appointed as the Bates women's lacrosse head coach in 2006, Brett Allen led the Bobcats to the NCAA tournament in 2016 and was named the NASCAC Coach of the Year. Bates has appeared in the national rankings numerous times during his tenure, and today he joins the Bobcast to give us a look into his background and why he coaches. I grew up in central New York, and uh, when I was looking at colleges, didn't apply to that many. It was five schools, I think, that I applied to, all pretty close to home, where I was uh, located near Syracuse, and... uh, St. Lawrence was a school that I was familiar with. I'd gone to camps there growing up and uh, just felt like it was going to be the best fit for me. Um, So went into college expecting, you know, like a lot of kids to figure out a way to get a career. I was going to earn some money and be able to provide a really nice life for myself. But uh, as an econ major, I did not love the material. So um, I grew up in a household of teachers and coaches. Both my parents were PE teachers and coaches and uh, ended up switching my major to um, the physical education um, major at St. Lawrence at the time. And, uh, and so that's what I finished with and kind of knew, I guess, at some point during my college career that teaching and coaching was something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So uh, once I made that switch, it was middle of my sophomore year. Um, I'm pretty much committed myself to that. So I guess that's when I knew that I was going to be uh, in this profession. Um, and then as far as uh, sports that I was involved with while I was at St. Lawrence, um, I actually didn't grow up playing lacrosse. My community was too small to offer um, more than basically just a couple of sports each season. So we didn't have lacrosse at my high school, um, but I did play lacrosse in college my sophomore and junior year. Um, and it was something that was pretty tough. I mean, obviously the recruiting side of things is a lot different now than it was then. And I think had I been in a similar situation as to most D3 schools now, there's no way I would have been able to, you know, pick up a stick and spend a lot of time on the wall and, you know, get good enough to, uh, to make the team. But back then you could kind of still do that. And so that's what I did. I was a defensive midfielder and, you know, played, played on the man down unit a little bit. So what inspired you to pick up the lacrosse stick? I mean, you get to college, what inspired you to say, I want to join the team? Yeah. So I think, you know, it's the same thing that drives a lot of kids to try and participate in college sports. Now, like as a high school athlete, part of your identity is to be active and to be part of a team. And um, I just felt like when I went to college, I wasn't willing to, I guess, give that up so early. And so, um, you know, I ended up just shifting gears and said, I'm going to give this a try. And as it turned out, there was enough room on the roster and my skills weren't so bad that they were like, no, thanks. Um, So you know, I, I wouldn't say my impact was significant by any means, but uh, I was in a position where having a roster spot and going and being part of the team was something that I was uh, content with at the time. 
what sport did you play in high school? You said there was no lacrosse. What were you doing in high school? Yeah. So we only had in the spring track and baseball um, at my high school growing up. I graduated with a, a high school graduating class of 74 kids. So half were guys, half were girls. And it was basically about the same size for, you know, the classes behind us as well. So we just didn't have the population to support more than a couple of sports. Um, and baseball being a more traditional sport in a lot of smaller rural communities, that's what I grew up playing. Um, I was about 130 pounds soaking wet when I went to college. So I didn't have the arm strength to continue playing baseball. I also couldn't hit a curve to save my life. Um, I could hit a fastball okay, but I could not hit a curveball. So um, when playing baseball wasn't an option, you know, I, I think part of my thinking was, well, I don't want to just stop playing completely. And athletics has been a big part of my life up to this point. So let's try lacrosse and worked out. So you graduate from St. Lawrence. How did you first get started in coaching? What was your first kind of break, if you will? So I had actually been coaching since I was 17, 18, because my dad was the coach at my high school. And so as soon as I graduated high school, I would go back and help him when I wasn't in college with his baseball team. When I was home on breaks, I would help him with his wrestling team. I was a, a wrestler in high school as well. Um, and then during the summer months, when I was in college, I coached Babe Ruth baseball teams and American Legion baseball teams, um, basically by myself. So I was, you know, two, three, four, five years older than a lot of the kids I was coaching, depending on the age group. Um, and I loved it. I loved the competitive side of it. I loved the coaching side of it. Um, you know, I liked obviously, you know, developing relationships with the players, which was really fun. And, you know, it was, it was just something that I kind of took to pretty naturally. Um, when I graduated from St. Lawrence, um, I went down to James Madison for two years for a graduate program. And the reason for that was because in New York state, when you finish your teaching uh, degree, regardless of what it's in, at the time you were required to get a master's within five years of that bachelor's degree. And so I took a year off, I substitute taught, um, I did some coaching, I coached, what did I coach? I coached cross country in the fall, I coached wrestling um, at two different schools in the winter time because in that part of the state, they have different seasons for different size schools. So. I coached two different teams. Um, I actually got a full-time substitute position at my rival high school. Um, and then I went to grad school in the fall of 1997 for two years down to James Madison University in Virginia. Um, and that's where I started coaching women's lacrosse. I started coaching the club team there uh, in the fall of 1997. So you're coaching women's lacrosse at that point. Obviously very different rules, very different style than men's lacrosse. What adjustments were there for you to start coaching the women uh, there at James Madison? Well, I think like most young coaches, the first thing I wanted to do was learn about the game because if you're going to coach a sport, the first thing you think of is I need to know the rules and I need to understand the tactics and the skills behind it. Um, but I would say that very quickly, I realized that coaching wasn't as much about the game as it was about how you communicate with the players and how you handle different situations that come up and how you just respond in those situations. And um, I think when I was coaching the women on that team for those two years, I think I learned more about how to just 
be a good listener and handle different things from an emotional perspective than I ever could have imagined I would. Um, obviously I learned a lot about the game and it was something that I thought was really, you know, intriguing and, you know, clearly intriguing enough to, you know, pursue for this long length of time. Um, but I just, it was refreshing. I had coached boys and baseball and wrestling for so long. And all of a sudden coaching women was just like, wow, they seem to listen and they seem to actually try and apply everything that you say. They don't think they know everything like the boys do. Like, this is amazing. Um, so I just felt like I was making more of a difference coaching the women, to be honest with you, than I was coaching the men. So after James Madison, you go straight to Washington and leave from there, or were there any schools in between? So I didn't coach in college. I did get a teaching job down in Virginia um, for a couple of years after I graduated. And then once I decided I didn't want to be coaching and teaching at the high school and middle school level, um, that's when I made the transition to Washington and Lee. Um, and I was lucky. I'll be the first to admit it. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of men that coach women's lacrosse in the collegiate ranks. At least there wasn't back then. Um, it's become a little bit trendier and more, more common nowadays, especially at the division one and division two levels. Um, but back then, you know, no men, like men don't play women's lacrosse. And the assumption was that most people that got hired were somebody that played a sport. Um, and so I was fortunate. Um, one of my relatives happens to be the athletic director at Washington and Lee currently. Her name is Jan Hathorne. And she um, was the women's lacrosse coach for years and years and years at Washington and Lee. And so I was living in Virginia. I'd gone to grad school down there. She and I had, you know, started to connect more um, over the course of my time in Virginia. And then she had a, an opening come up um, on her staff in the, uh, I guess, it, after the end of the 2002 um, lacrosse season. And so that's when I guess I decided I was going to make this jump to the college level and, you know, uh, go from there. And here we are, 17, 18 years later at Bates. Well, I'm curious because when you first got hired at Bates, it wasn't for women's lacrosse. It was for volleyball. Tell me about that. It was, it was for volleyball. I had uh, coached volleyball at the uh, school I was working at after grad school. And then in addition to coaching lacrosse as an assistant at Washington and Lee, I also helped out with the volleyball team there. So, um, you know, when I was looking to move on from WNL, I was 29 going on 30, you know, thinking about being a head coach someplace. And so I applied for both volleyball and lacrosse jobs. Um, volleyball was a position or was a sport where positions were being filled pretty regularly by men. Um, and I think it was more acceptable at the time to hire a man in those positions. Um, and I think women's lacrosse jobs traditionally just because men hadn't played those sports um, were typically filled by women. And I, you know, I think there's title nine, obviously um, uh, consequences that every school is thinking about as they make hires. Um, and I think, you know, I was fortunate that I had worked at a school very similar to Bates, had recruited similar student athletes. We'd been successful. Um, and, you know, I think like most jobs that most of us fall into it's the right place, right time. And it was a really good fit. So how familiar were you with Bates when you applied here? Uh, I would be nice. I'd be lying if I said I was super familiar. Um, you know, I think everybody does their due diligence when they look into a job or look into relocating to a certain area. And I felt like 
as a 29 year old, I probably did as much as I felt like I needed to do. Um, if I was going to be moving somewhere now, I'd probably do a little bit more, right? Just because you don't know what you don't know when you're younger. Um, well, actually, I still don't know what I don't know right now. Um, but, you know, the reality is, like, it was a head coaching job, I was focused more on the professional side of things. Um, you know, I wanted to be a head coach. I, I wanted to work at a place that I felt like I could recruit to and that I was comfortable, you know, with the sort of academic environment that students were going to be in. Um, and Bates sort of checked all those boxes. So I will say I initially thought I'd be moving closer to family when I moved north, being from central New York, but it ended up being the same distance from home, whether I was in Virginia or Maine. Right, right. So for a few years here, once you did take over the women's lacrosse program, you were the head coach of two programs at once. What was that experience like? And it must have been kind of stressful, I'd imagine. Well, the NESCAC's unique. We all know that you don't have a non-traditional season. So, you know, I don't think the responsibilities at a NESCAC school for coaching two sports were the same as they were at, say, other institutions outside our conference, where a lot of coaches, say, were soccer and lacrosse coaches or field hockey and lacrosse coaches. And while they were coaching their in-season team, they were also having a non-traditional season with their out-of-season team. And at Bates, we obviously didn't have that. So I think you know, for me, I was always comparing it to what other people were doing that I knew in the, in the industry. And I felt like if they could manage it while they were coaching two sports at one time, I could certainly manage it coaching one sport a season. Um, I think as, as the, the first decade of the two thousands or this century really evolved, the whole landscape with recruiting and attracting student athletes to colleges changed. And it really became tough to, um, to try and, really give both programs the support they needed. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was one of those things where I wouldn't say I necessarily wanted to stop coaching one sport, but the switch to just coaching lacrosse made a lot of sense for, um, for a lot of reasons, both, both personally and professionally. So that transition happened um, after the fall of 2010, where going into the 2011, 2012 calendar year, I was just coaching lacrosse and, and have been just doing that since then. Who are some of your mentors in coaching? Who have you often gone to for advice or when, when you had questions about, you know, different situations and whatnot? Sure. Sure. When I was a younger coach, uh, I would say a lot of my, a lot of the resources were the coaches that I was working with, the head coaches that I uh, worked with. And, and I would say just because I grew up in a household of coaches, my, my parents, you know, even though they didn't coach at the collegiate level, they had been coaching for years and, you know, both ended up retiring after about 30 years um, coaching at the high school level. So I think while there were different situations, you know, just the whole developing a plan for the season, developing practices, um, you know, how to communicate effectively with the kids or at least do the best you can to communicate effectively um, was always something that I guess I talked to my, my parents about. Um, I think as you coach longer, you obviously meet more people and you generate relationships that are going to be fruitful for both of you moving forward. Um, you know, I would say that Missy Foote, who was the coach at Middlebury for years and years and years, was somebody who right as she was sort of finishing her career was somebody that I talked to a fair amount, partially because we were on some committees together, partially because I also met my wife through um, 
the sort of competition that we have with Middlebury. She was an assistant coach at Middlebury at the time. And, you know, once Heidi and I started dating, you know, clearly that relationship that she had with Missy was something that she continued. And so, you know, I would say that we had plenty of just really candid conversations about coaching and, you know, interacting with other, other coaches and your athletes and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's so many people that you meet along the way that I think influence why you do what you do, things that you want to try, and then how you continue to coach that, you know, it's, it's hard to just say there's one or two or three, you know, I would say every NESCAC peer that I've ever coached against is, is somebody that I would rely on. You know, I watch how they coach their teams. I watch how they develop certain systems for their offense or their defense. And then we talk about it sometimes. I don't talk about it with everybody, but you know, we definitely talk about it. So. Well, you mentioned that uh, your, your wife, Heidi is quite the accomplished athlete and coach herself, I believe. Uh, did she go to Middlebury and won some national titles there as a student athlete, if I'm not mistaken? Is that right? Yes, she definitely did. She had a very storied career there as a field hockey and lacrosse player. Um, and, uh, and so it's been fun to obviously live our adult lives together um, since, you know, we met through coaching and, you know, we're still involved with lacrosse and, and you know, we we're obviously raising a family and running some businesses together. And she coached with me at Bates for a while. Um, as well. And so, you know, I think obviously having her as somebody who understands what the, I guess, job requirements are as a coach is really nice because I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of folks in this country who, um, you know, who live with somebody who doesn't understand exactly everything that goes into their job. Um, And Heidi definitely does. So that's, that's really great. What's your favorite part of coaching? What has kept you you know, involved with it for, you know, your, your entire career, basically. The competition is something that that I think, you know, when you're an athlete, you don't realize how much you crave it. And then once you get out of playing, you know, I think coaching is a great way to sort of fuel that competitive fire that a lot of coaches had as athletes. So I would say initially that was a, a big reason, but I will say that, you know, the last five to 10 years, the relationships that I've made with the players, you know, watching them grow as people over the course of their four years at Bates. Um, and then now that I'm, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, more than twice as old as most of the as all the kids that are enrolling at Bates now as freshmen, like the relationships that I have with their families, you know, and, and just meeting people who are so supportive of their daughters and so supportive of the program. Um, I really enjoy that part of the job and obviously the coaching piece and being on the field and trying to develop a team that's going to have a chance to be successful is, is awesome. Um, but, you know, just kind of connecting with the kids and, and, and seeing how they grow over time is I think what is absolutely my favorite thing. And now at this point, I feel like you've been in the NESCAC for so long now that you've like, Nothing surprises you, right? Whenever I feel like I, I interview you, it's like, well, I've seen that before, right? The thing with being anywhere for a long period of time is you start to just roll with the punches a little bit more than maybe younger coaches or newer coaches. Um, and it's not because you're you know, not trying to accomplish the same things. It's just there are certain things that can ruffle my feathers and there are certain things that can't. And so I guess I would just say that the things that ruffle my feathers now um, are very different than the things that used to ruffle my feathers. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, okay. um, in ter- I guess in terms of your highlights here at Bates, I mean, that 
the NCAA tournament bid in, uh, in 2016 has to be top of the list, right? I mean, take me back to that moment in time, kind of to, to break through, if you will, for the program. Yeah, I, I think certainly from a team perspective, I mean, the fact that we put ourselves in a position to qualify for NCAAs in 2016 um, is something that I'm super proud of. Um, but I think I'm more proud of just the fact of how that group of seniors sort of evolved over their four years and kind of took the bull by the horns that that year leading into, so I guess fall 2015, um, leading into the season in 2016. Um, you know, coaches have obviously a lot of influence and provide a lot of direction, but I also think that, you know, the athletes have to really want it themselves and they have to be willing to do things that maybe they weren't willing to do previously to get things that they haven't accomplished before. And, um, you know, obviously every year teams are working hard and I, I've always been proud of all of our teams for really being very hardworking. Um, but for whatever reason, that team in that year really just got things to click and they were able to kind of be on the same page from, I wouldn't say from the get-go because there's always challenges and bumps that they have to figure out. And that group certainly did. I mean, there was 10 seniors in that class. So like figuring out how to communicate well with each other and with their teammates was something that they had to navigate. Um, but once they figured that out, they were really all moving in the same direction for, for what we wanted to accomplish. And I think, you know, I don't think that that was probably our most talented team, but because they were all on the same page, it definitely helped us in some of the close games that we played that year that put us in a position to qualify for NCAAs. I know you also coach a club lacrosse team, right, in the state. Tell me a little bit about that, how that developed. Yeah, so um, my wife and I and Lauren Kane, Lauren Reed Kane, who has assisted me at Bates, um, basically co-own this club that uh, offers opportunities, different programs for kids in the state from kindergarten through 12th grade to, you know, work on their skills, learn the game, grow their game. Um, we have normal programs that are an hour long. We also have some more intense programs that are, you know, designed for kids who want to play in college. And, uh, you know, it's something that you know, we are proud of. Uh, we took it over in the fall of 2014. So it's been something that we've been doing now for a little over six years. Um, and, uh, and it's just really cool to see, you know, on the girls side, how our teams of kids who start playing with us in middle school, you know, evolve as they get into, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. Um, and on the boys side, which we just started a few uh, falls ago, to see how those kids have really been able to kind of grow from our coaches and the instruction that we provide. So um, it's cool. You know, I, I think, uh, again, we get to meet a lot of great people. We get to know a lot of great families from the state and it's just neat to kind of help them with the process if they're thinking of playing in college um, and then exposing them to a game that's been so good to, to me and to Heidi and to Lauren. How would you describe your coaching style? What do you, what do you like out there? What, what do you really see yourself as? Oh, it's probably a mixed bag, you know, right? We're all human, so we all have emotions. There's some days where you're a little bit more fired up. There's other days where you're a little bit more mellow. Um, I think those are impacted by where you are in the season, how much success you've had, um, you know, how many, <clears throat> how much pressure you're putting on yourself for the team to succeed. Um, but I guess overall, I would say that, you know, I like to think of myself as somebody who is, 
really tuned in and focused when we really need to be tuned in and focused, but also not going to kind of micromanage the details every second. Um, you know, being a student athlete at Bates is hard enough. And I think if I was a coach who was like on these kids every second of every week um, about what they're doing for lacrosse, um, whether it was just in checking in or whether it was just, you know, really pushing them, um, I think, I think they'd struggle. I think they'd struggle with lacrosse. I think they'd struggle academically. And, and I don't think the experience would be that great. Um, you know, so I don't know, I guess somebody who's going to care about them, but also who's going to push them, but also not kind of take it to an extreme in either sense. Great. Well, any other thoughts you want to share about coaching we haven't got to talk about yet? Oh, we could talk coaching forever, Aaron, but, um, you know, I guess I would just say that, um, coaching at Bates is, is been really a great thing for me. I never would have guessed that I'd be living in Maine when I was a a youngster or thinking about where I might, you know, settle down when I got to be an adult and raise a family. But, uh, you know, Bates has been an amazing place for me professionally and obviously, uh, has provided an opportunity for me to do something I love for a really long time. So I guess that's about it. Peter Lasagna spent 18 years coaching at his alma mater, Brown University. He has coached the Bobcats in the 20 years since then, leading Bates to the top of the national rankings and two NCAA tournament appearances. I blew my knee out when I was a sophomore in college. And so why do I coach? Because I couldn't play anymore. Uh, and they, they weren't nearly as good at putting ACLs back together uh, in the late 70s. Um, and so I had an opportunity to stay involved. I had this burning desire. I still had all this lacrosse in me uh, that had nowhere to go anymore. And in the way that I thought it would go, how I would express myself as a player. And so I had an opportunity while I, while I was still finishing up my undergraduate work at Brown um, to be an assistant coach with, uh, with Coach Dom Starsha. So uh, that's how I started. I, you know, I always thought I'd teach. I think in one way, shape or form, that was an idea that was in my head for a long, long, long time. I did a bunch of teaching um, in college and, and after, uh, actually before, during and after college. Um, so that was always there. And then, yeah, I, I never thought I'd do it full time, quite honestly. When I first started doing that with Coach Starja, I just thought, well, this is because I can't play. And then all of a sudden it was a year and then two and then three and then five. And then, God, I got benefits like eight years in. I got benefits. Woo. Excellent. Before we get into head coaching a little bit, going back even further, maybe growing up, how did you first get involved with the sport? Yeah, so I was born and raised uh, in Baltimore, Maryland, where lacrosse is a is a very important sport. And so while I played all sports, literally all sports, um, and loved basketball, maybe almost as much as I loved lacrosse, um, I got a lacrosse. I mean, I started playing organized lacrosse in first grade. So when I was six years old. I started playing organized lacrosse and it was a big thing in my town. It was a big thing in my neighborhood. It was a big thing at my school. Um, and a lot of the best players that had ever played uh, in Maryland um, were, all around, were all around me. You know, those, those people were all my heroes. And so I wanted to be one of them. How did your experience at Brown build you, shape you as a coach, kind of? I mean, you were there for 18 years, eight as a head coach, but how did that experience, how, how did you find yourself growing as a coach over time? Yeah, well, I was really fortunate, obviously. Uh, this is the most sort of stock answer, I suppose, to that question, but it's true. I was surrounded by really extraordinary people, um, extraordinary mentors, uh, Dom Starja, obviously, being one of the very most important Um a legendary guy who's in every hall of fame in our sport. 
um, but also really, really great assistant coaches uh, that I learned from. And in my time, again, I'm going to sound really old, but I am pretty old. Uh, when you came up in this sport as an assistant, the way that you survived was by working teaching camps. Like that's what you did. And so to stay in this sport, even if you were making no money uh, from your university, you made money in the summer by, by going to teaching camps. And so I, that allowed me to have constant opportunities to have these people that were much better, more important and experienced lacrosse coaches than I was to say, okay, Peter Lasagna, you're gonna be on, you're gonna have a full field demo for these 350 kids that are here today and all these other division one coaches are gonna be watching you. Um, so that really sort of, that helped me figure out, I, I, I like doing this, like this is exciting to me, this is fun, Help, watching that kid who couldn't do this two hours ago can now do a thing he never imagined doing on a lacrosse field, like that was, that was exciting to me. Um, so that's really how I got going. And then I got more and more responsibility. You know, the, the longer I did it, the more and more responsibility I got. And, and at one point, maybe after five years being an assistant, Coach Starja made me the offensive coordinator. So for the first time, I actually got an, a half of the field to myself. Um, and like every assistant, uh, and it's good to be an assistant, I think for this reason, if you end up being a head coach, like every assistant, you know, I knew better. I, I just, I, I knew some, I knew some things to do that, that just somehow were lost on this guy that would end up being in every hall of fame in our sport forever and be maybe the most winning coach of all time. Uh, myself and the other assistants, we, we, we knew some things we could have done better. So uh, after a really long time, I finally got an opportunity to, to see if that was right. You mentioned coach starts being a mentor for you. What'd you learn from him? I would say I learned recruiting um, and how to make recruiting really personal. Um, again, one of my favorite quote, quotes from Dom was take it personally, but don't make it personal. In other words, connect with that person in, in every way that you connect, connect with that person and their family, but you're going to get rejected. So don't, don't take rejection personally. And, and I thought that was really important. And part of why people loved playing for Dom uh, was that he was a really, really close part of their lives in every part of their life, not just on the lacrosse field. And uh, I would say those are the things that, that I really took from him. What was it like coaching in the Ivy League kind of in general in terms of your opponents, in terms of the culture there? Yeah, it's really interesting, Aaron. And I've said this a lot since uh, in all the years since I've been at Bates. Um, obviously, hyper-competitive, uh, not just the league, but in order to be nationally competitive, in our case, we also decided to play every best team, scholarship team in Division One that we could play, right, in order to prepare for the Ivy League. Um, play all the best teams that you could, Hofstra, Syracuse, Loyola, Georgetown, you know, everybody, Virginia, everybody that we could play at, to, get, to get you ready for those all-important Ivy games. And so, but again, compared to the NESCAC, there were half as many teams. So I could actually sit here today in 2021 and tell you that both as an assistant and a head coach at Brown, I had more confidence going into games that I, I knew that if we played close to as well as we could play and the other team did, we were probably going to win. Um, I had that thought, I mean, that may be counterintuitive to you, but I had that thought many more times <laughs> in the 18 years that I coached at Brown than in the 20 years that I've coached at Bates, where quite literally every NESCAC game, you're just going, whew, I hope we play really well today and I hope they don't. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you were competing against, you know, Bill Tierney, 
who is is the Jesus Christ of our of our sport and has won you know a million national championships. Tony Seaman, uh, Richie Moran. I mean, a, a bunch of the best people who have ever coached the sport were coaching it in the in the league when I was coming up as an assistant and a head coach. So yeah, I was exposed to again. They were great teachers in terms of trying to compete against them and beat them. Um, and you just, yeah, you, you, you had to have your wits about you to compete with those guys and, and, and obviously try to beat them. And if you could win the league, you knew you were going to be ranked in the top, you know, 10 in the country and, and probably make the NCAA tournament. So the opportunity arises, you end up coming to Bates. Your first year at Bates is 2001. How did you, how did that process happen? How did you go from Brown to Bates? How did that kind of develop for you? Very interesting question, Aaron. Um, and one that it took me a while to figure out because I literally just got a cold call sitting in my office at Brown in Providence. I got a cold call from a woman named Suzanne Coffey, who was the athletic director at uh, Bates College. And we all want to be wanted. So when an athletic director from any school calls you and says, would you think about this position? Um, that was flattering. That was nice. A funny little sidelight is the reason why Al Brown, who was my predecessor at Bates, the reason why that position was available was because he had just become the AD boys lacrosse and football coach at Portsmouth Abbey, right across the bay from where we lived in Southern Rhode Island in Portsmouth. And my first thought when I got that news wasn't, ooh, I could go be the coach at Bates now or, 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 or at least think about it. My first thought was, damn, why didn't I think about applying for the AD's football and boys lacrosse job at Portsmouth Abbey? Because that seems like that could be a pretty cool gig. Uh, so I went home and I talked to my wife, Holly, and uh, I had absolutely no interest because why would I leave? I mean, I had my dream job. I was coaching the sport I love at the school that I loved. And so why would I think about going somewhere else and leaving the Ivy League and leaving Division One? I? I mean, that had been my dream my whole time coming up. So so why would I do it? And again, uh, best wisdom I could I could give to you or or anyone else. If you can marry someone that's smarter than you, I strongly encourage you to do that. And I definitely did. And because I married someone that's smarter than me, when I came home with lots of good division one Ivy league coach reasons why this wasn't the right opportunity at the right time, Holly kept having counter arguments about our quality of life, um, how fun it would be to, to, to be involved in a, in a program that looked like it was sort of ready to maybe take a next step up um, and get to be with Holly Deacon and Carmen a whole lot more than I got to be <laughs> with them at Brown. And so uh, that started sort of the courting process, if you will, but, uh, it was a huge decision for me to even think about returning her call. I'd never looked at another job in all the years that I'd coached. I'd, I'd been approached one other time uh, for the UMass position, but I, I didn't respond at all. So I, I literally had I'd been at the same place since I was 18 years old, and I'd never thought about going anywhere else. So it was a big thing for me to even think about change. Did Suzanne ever tell you how she got your name? I mean, why she reached out? Well, so it's really funny, Aaron, and, and I don't know that we've actually had these three principals in the room at the same time, <laughs> myself, Suzanne Coffey, and I believe the answer to that question is a guy named Jeff Ward, who was the athletic director at Bowdoin at the time, and Jeff had been an associate or assistant athletic director at Brown for eight or nine years, and he was specifically, he was like my direct uh, administrative report. So Jeff and I worked really, really closely together through all those you know, some really exciting Brown lacrosse years at Brown. And so my guess is Suzanne and Jeff had a pretty good relationship and she must have just said, Hey, do you think there's anybody out there? And Jeff Ward, again, I've never confirmed this, but this is my suspicion. Jeff Ward must have said, you know, Peter Lasagna might be a division one guy who might be interested in, in at least taking your call. Mm. Now, right. 
at that time, the NESCAC was just starting to coalesce as an actual playing conference with a tournament and all that. You you were there kind of basically at, at the beginning of that, basically, right? I mean, what was that process like, I guess? Yes. No, again, you're a very good historian. Uh, that's correct. They had just gotten permission to participate in the NCAA tournament just a couple of years before. And Middlebury was in the process of being by far the best team. Um, I mean, they were winning the national championship in both men's and women's. A bunch of the people on both of those men's and women's lacrosse teams from Middlebury were also winning the national championships in ice hockey. Uh, I mean, they, they were just, they were at a, they were at a different level. Um, and so they had won, I don't know if they'd won two or three national championships before I got here, but that was sort of what, what I came into. And then Wesley and I would say, I mean, everybody was good, right? Bowden was very good. Conn College was very good. Everybody was good, but, but Wesleyan had sort of made that next move to be, you know, the team that was, that was coming to maybe be able to approach uh, Middlebury. And then, um, yeah, that was, and it was ridiculous. I mean, it was how good those teams were, how good the, the guys at Middlebury were, how stupid I felt for missing all these players who absolutely could have been really good Ivy league cross players that somehow me and my staff missed. Uh, that was quite Quite an eye-opening experience, especially those for that first year, which is like, holy crap! I, I I may have bitten off a little bit more than I could chew here. Yeah, my so it took you by surprise a little bit, I guess, maybe coming from the Ivy League to see how good it these did. Guys. I mean, I didn't, you know, I think we all know each other a little bit, especially New England lacrosse mafia is a is a real thing. But I was getting ready for Syracuse and Loyola and Virginia and, and Hofstra and Princeton and Penn. I, you know, I, I wasn't paying too much attention about how good Middlebury and Conn College were. So, um, yeah, I mean, I remember the first time that we played Trinity, the pro league was just about to start, the pro outdoor league. And I remember shaking one young man's hand and I just said, you know, are you thinking about trying out for the MLL? And he looked at me like I was insane. I was like, dude, <laughs> like you should try to get a trial. Like, I mean, and that, yeah, it was, it was eye-opening to me that, that there were that, that kids were, and that was, that was 20 years ago, Aaron. Like that's only become more and more true in the last 20 years, but yeah, it was, it was humbling. And then how have you um, kind of seen the Bates program grow from when you first got here? I mean, you, you've had a lot to do with it, obviously, but in, you know, last few years in particular have been particularly high moments for the program, but how have you seen that development happen? Yeah, well, I, I, again, I, I think we know what the model is, right? Combination of education that, that allows you to springboard into pursuing your greatest after college passions um, at a really, really high level, an amazing network that you become a part of, um, and the opportunity to compete at a really high level in your sport and study abroad and have a life. This is all pre-COVID, of course. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's why the NESCAC is so hyped. And I believe that, you know, again, that's what I signed on for. I, I, my thing was, if teams in this league are competing for national championships in all sports, even with all their out-of-season restrictions and all that, then that should be our expectation. Our expectation should be we, we are competing at that level. So that was part of why I was excited about this job because I wasn't sure that anybody at Bates besides Suzanne Coffey and me maybe, um, and Al Brown for sure, my predecessor, had ever thought about competing at that level. Um, and so, yeah, you start out with a great 
product and then you try to find kids and it wasn't unlike my rap at Brown quite honestly which was you know yeah sure you could go to Princeton and probably be more likely to win another national championship or you could come here and help us do something we'd never done and 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 again so I think that's what was to me that's what I found the key like let me find those students who are capable of being great players at Middlebury or Wesleyan or Bowdoin or wherever else but who really find that Bates is the right fit educationally, really like the appeal of Lewiston Auburn um, and are excited about being pioneers. And so uh, we succeeded in doing that and, and, and figured out pretty quickly how to separate the people that liked wearing the jacket, uh, but maybe didn't wanna do all the hard work that you needed to do to compete at that higher level, um, the difference between them and, and the kids that, that really wanted the whole package. Um, and look, I mean, it's about this complicated get some people that are division one players that division one schools miss that are extraordinary students and extraordinary leaders and human beings and give them a couple tools and, and set them free. And then if you're a young kid in this sport, you pay attention to, to, to teams that are doing well and uh, you go, Ooh, I want, I want to, that kid, that guy looked really cool. You know, Charlie Faye looked really cool scoring that goal. Kyle Weber looked really cool. Matt Lestava looked, those, those helmet decals, I mean, this is really yeah. complex, right? Those helmet decals looked really cool. That behind the back ESPN thing looked really, I mean, really, it's, it's about that complicated. But it's, it, like I said, it's, it's, we just keep rele relearning the same lessons. You know, we went to the final four at Brown and nobody ever had gone to the final four at Brown before. And, and we did. And so then you, that, that gets you attention and exposure in a way that you hadn't been exposed before. And maybe now some kids who hadn't thought about looking look. And, and, and our league is just, you know, our, our league is just ridiculous. So yeah. the league sells itself and then we sell Bates and Lewiston Auburn. Your coaching style, how would you describe it? Like what kind of coach are you? I hope I'm emotional uh, and enthusiastic. Um, I hope that I connect. I, I make a great effort to connect in a, in a personal way with each one of our people. Um, they're not all the same. So that while there may be some non-negotiables in, in how we go about doing our sport, I, I hope I'm also open-minded enough uh, to be as good a listener as I am a, 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 a talker. Um, and so, yeah, I just try to make it personal, try to make it exciting, try to make it emotional, try to connect them to both the Bates players that have come before them. So they, they feel like they owe some obligation um, and take some pride in that. But also it's one of the really beautiful things about our sport is that if you're connected to this sport, certainly if you're gonna play for me, <laughs> being connected to the sport, you're also gonna get connected to the roots of this sport and to the people that gave us this sport. And it's the oldest game and it's the oldest game with, a, with really, really sacred um, and creation story roots uh, for the first people of, of this continent. And so to me, that just makes lacrosse just a little bit cooler and more fun and exciting than, than all these other sports. And it really is, you know, so that's part of, in, in answering your question, part of my style is also to connect them to that part of our game, because I, I think it's really empowering. And, and I think if you listen to, you know, certainly if you listen to current native players talking about what the game means to them, you know, and, and you're a player at Bates and, and you think about, oh my God, I, in addition to everything else, I'm connected to that too. So that's a, that's a, a, a short answer to that question. Sure. And then, um, you know, working with your assistants, I mean, you've had a few since I've been here. I mean, the assistants, obviously, uh, their goal is to get head coaching jobs down the road. But how do you go about working with your assistant coaches? 
Yeah, I, and again, I, it goes back to something I said earlier. I, I think it's really valuable if, if you're going to end up being a head coach in any sport um, that you've spent some time being an assistant. So you just, you just understand what that life uh, is all about. And what I've always said to every person I've, I've ever convinced to come work with us here at Bates is if you give me, you know, sort of fill in the blank, I, I might start with the number three uh, years. Seems like a good one. Um, but if you give me fill in the blank numbers of your life and just make a commitment to, to, to help build what, we're, what we've been trying to build here for 20 years, um, I'll try to help create an opportunity for you to get a better job if you want to stay in this position. And uh, it also probably doesn't hurt that I've been at it for a long time. And, and, I, and there's certainly people out there that don't love me, but hopefully there are more people out there that, that like me than don't. And so I'm also able to reach out and, and be a good resource and a good recommendation for people that, that want to go get other jobs. Um, and we've been really lucky. We've had, look, every head coach will tell you, I'm sure everybody in this series has said, I'm as good as my assistant coaches. And boy, is that the truth. How crazy is it you've been at Bates now longer than you were at your alma mater? It's wild, Aaron. I, and and like, I didn't have, a, there, there wasn't a, uh, a big confetti ceremony uh, anywhere on, in, in Lewiston, I, as I recall. Uh, but it was very meaningful to me um, because again, I, I felt like I was there forever. Um, and to now be able to be here and still be able to, I mean, I'm just also really, really lucky, man. I, I, I'm able to do what I love to do and, and what I believe for me was the right profession. Um, and I've been able to do it, not good, so far uninterrupted uh, for almost 40 years. I mean, I, you know, all of my friends, including many of those people who when I first started coaching and, and was making no money, but living in a great place uh, in, in Southern Rhode Island, all those people, you got to remember, I'm old. So a lot of my friends and peers graduated into the, one of the first big, big booms, uh, especially in the financial markets. And so all these guys, including some real knuckleheads uh, who barely survived academically, were making zillions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, and just saying to me and Holly, you know, what are you guys doing? You know, you stayed in Rhode Island. And, and over time, a lot of those people, you know, have said, Boy, you're really lucky to do what you do. And they're right. What is the most fun aspect of the job for you? Is it game day? Is it the recruiting process? Some coaches love recruiting, some hate it. Uh, what's the most fun part of coaching for you? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll be philosophical first. Uh, <laughs> one of the fun things is both watching a player do something, you know, especially in a big moment, obviously, because it's that much more meaningful, but watching a player do something um, on the lacrosse field that, that he'd never done before. That's really, really gratifying. But also watching somebody, you know, and this may sound like a funny answer to your question, Aaron, but I, but I really mean this, um, watching them become somebody who they weren't, who is different than who they were when they, when they first arrived at Bates. And, and I would use this as that example and probably to embarrass him a little bit if he, if he listens to this, uh, but I'll never forget when Jack Allard uh, was a senior, um, and Jack was a really smart and really open-minded young man besides being a, a magical lacrosse player. But I remember just sitting in my office one day when Jack was still here, I believe he was a senior. And just, uh, it was, I think in the fall. And, and he said, hey coach, you know, we were gonna go for a team run today, but I was wondering um, if you thought it was okay. I, I don't know if you've gotten word, but, but there's a protest um, on Main Street in Lewiston. And it had to do with Ben Chin who was then running for mayor. 
And Jack said, I think it would be a really great thing for our program, for the guys in our program um, to have our run today be meeting wherever we're gonna meet on campus and then we'll run over to uh, that protest. And he said, I just think, it would, I think it's important. I think it's important for us to be there. And I think it's important for people in Lewiston, Auburn and in the base community to see the Bates lacrosse team, you know, supporting Ben Chin and being there. And I just, I mean, Aaron, look, if you coach for as long as I do, you realize that three quarters of what you say to these people does not get internalized or processed, certainly in the four years that they're playing for you, maybe five or 10 years down the road, they may go, oh, that's what he meant. But to see that, and I'm not saying that Jack would not have been in exactly that same place when he graduated from Ridgewood High School, but he might not have been. And so for me to realize that one of my leaders and most important players, like he thought that was just as important as whatever lacrosse thing, you know, they were going to do that day. I, I, I was just like, so that I would, I would put that in a list of really, really gratifying things. But yeah, I mean, obviously winning at a really high level, you know, it doesn't say anywhere in my bio. And he's a really good person who works hard to teach to the whole human being, right? It doesn't say that. It says he won this many games and he lost this many games. So people are bonded by achieving something athletically together that maybe they didn't think they could achieve uh, or that had never been done before. And so I can't minimize that part of it. I mean, many of the relationships that will last the longest between myself and people that I've coached and coached with are those teams that had historic success. So, you know, watching people do unbelievable things on the big stage is obviously is, is, is super gratifying as well. You know, the Jack Allard story you just shared, you know, being active in the community. I mean, lacrosse for better or worse. I mean, there's certain stereotypes, right? So how, how much impact do you hope to have in terms of fighting those and, and changing culture when needed? Right. No, I really appreciate you asking that question, Aaron. And um, again, I'm not going to tell you that that was one of my prime motivators to first get into this profession, but it certainly has become over the course of the last almost 40 years, I think a really important part of what I do. Um, because yeah, we're, I'm trying to help them become better lacrosse players. I'm trying to get them invested in making this commitment together uh, to do this really powerful and, and, and fun thing in our sport. But this only lasts four years and the rest of their life lasts for the rest of their life. So if we can have any impact in open the, opening their minds a little bit um, in making them uh, slightly better or more engaged humans, right? We're trying to help them get ready to go be leaders, um, to go be important decision makers. And so that's a critical part of, of what we do, um, right? Our, our, our our blank canvas, if you will, <laughs> is our shared love for this game and, and commitment to try to find out how good we can be at it. Um, but that is what allows, that brings us energy, that brings us enthusiasm, that brings us this willingness to think deeply about who they are and what they're doing. And then you can turn them in, in some of these other directions. And so to me, we talk about that a lot. I talk about it from the very beginning of the recruiting process that we have an active de-broification process uh, in our program. And if you don't think you can handle surviving our active debrofication, this may not be uh, the right fit. So I'm not going to tell you that, that I have completely changed any stereotype. And you know how these things are. You can work really hard at that. You can prioritize that as a really important part of, of, of building your culture. And it takes exactly one event 
uh, one stupid decision, one backslide to then reaffirm every one of those stereotypes. But no, it's a, I'm really glad you asked that question. It's a, it's a really important part of who we are. And the way that we talk about it is you have an opportunity in every interaction you have everywhere on campus, off campus, in class, in the dining hall, you know, in every part of your life, you have an opportunity in every one of those interactions to either confirm those stereotypes or have people walk away and go, oh, wow, maybe I was wrong. That's a, that's a really intelligent, thoughtful, caring, compassionate, empathetic human being, huh? Maybe I should think differently. And, and part of what's fun for me, you know, as an old former hippie radical, uh, is I do take plans. Part of why I work with all I've worked with all the different groups that I've worked with on campuses because I want, I'm engaged in the work and I really enjoy it. I think it's important, but I also do. It presents me an opportunity to have people, even if I don't say a word, which, as you know, is not easy for me. But sometimes when I go into those settings, I'm really conscious of not talking, and but my mere presence might make some people in that room who are not varsity athletes at, at Bates go huh, that's interesting. The men's lacrosse coach was here, you know? So yeah, thank you for asking that question. I appreciate that. Well, debrofication is a great word. So I... <laughs> when, this, when this goes nationwide, that might bring us some interest from younger players and there might be some who might decide that this is not the right fit and, and that's okay. Right. Well, any other thoughts you wanted to share about why you coach or about coaching that we haven't got to talk about yet? Yeah, I, tr- I actually, I, I got some of it into... Um, that last uh, answer, but but as I said, I, I think this, I've always looked at it as this amazing opportunity to combine uh, my passion for this game with my passion for knowledge. And, you know, again, what gets me some open minds is the fact that we are, we are bonded in our love for this sport and, and trying to get really good at it. Um, but the, the power that comes with all that other stuff you know, and we all know that the, the team that, that trusts each other, the team that loves each other, the team that feels like, you know, it's defined as cool in this program, you know, to call your coach and say, hey, I think we should go to this protest. Like that all folds in, I think, in, in, in who you become and, and what you leave. And, and the point of it is the Bates education, certainly, and what you get prepared to do what you want to do after in life. But the point is also to leave Bates College and Lewiston Auburn better than we than than we found it. And so, why did I get into coaching? I got into coaching uh, in hopes that I might be able to help some people succeed at a really high level in their sport, um, help them get a great education, but also help them continue to grow and become somebody maybe at least slightly different than who they were when they were 17 or 18 years old and and ready to go out there and make great change in the in the world. So that's why I coach. Next time on the Bates Bobcast, we'll continue the YA Coach series with our head softball coach, Mikkel Barnes, and our head baseball coach, John Martin. That's next time on the Bates Bobcast. Bates, Bates, my